I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. For today's episode, Elise sat down with experimental psychologist Steven Pinker. Pinker is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University and a best-selling author. His latest book is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. If you think the world is coming to an end, Pinker says, think again. Of all of the graphs showing uh, improvement in the book, the one that stuns people the most, and, and myself included, was one that plots IQ scores over time and shows that we are getting smarter in three IQ points a decade for a century. So we score 30 points higher than our great-grandparents a century ago. Now, how could that be true? I mean, we haven't changed biologically. We have the same brains. I learned a lot from his conversation with Elise, and when I finished listening, I did feel hopeful. Okay, time for today's chat. So I want to thank you for your book because I have to say, like everyone, I live under the veil of general anxiety and fear of this world. Um, And your book is an antidote to that. So as I was reading it on the plane, I was feeling increasingly calm um, and more rational because I think, I mean, you talk a lot about reason and rationality and enlightenment now, but this idea that the world is improving, I think we all fundamentally know to be true. And you sort of lay out in all the ways that it is. And I could just, I could feel my, I could feel my chest relaxing. So thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm sure you wrote it expressly for that purpose. But what was the most, I guess, surprising part sort of of the book, just that everything is improving? The, The surprise came in two waves. Uh, I, I wrote a, a pr- previous book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Mm-hmm. Stole the title from Abraham Lincoln. It's okay. He doesn't mind. Yeah, I'm sure he's, he's not around to object. <laughs> uh, and the subtitle was Why Violence Has Declined. Mm. Now, most people are shocked when they hear, when they read the, the subtitle, because it's natural to assume that violence has increased. And my, my first surprise was about 10 years ago when I started to come across statistics showing that whenever you plot the rate of violence over time, how many people get killed in wars every year, how many people are murdered, how many women are victims of domestic violence or sexual violence, how many kids are are abused, Uh, the the curves go down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this comes as a surprise because, of course, they haven't gone down to zero. Now, the fact that there's less of it can't make the papers because you never have a story that says uh, such and such a country has been at peace for the last 30 years. That just doesn't count as news. And so our perception of the world is distorted by the headlines, the violence that still takes place, and we don't appreciate that the chance of being a victim of violence has gone down. Mm. So that led to the book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, 
And then I discovered that if you take that same mindset, that is, don't look at headlines, but look at numbers, you see that other aspects of human life have also been improving, and you, and, and you can't appreciate it from reading the papers. So, for example, the uh, number of people worldwide living in extreme poverty, and this is the most grinding level of poverty you can imagine, not, barely enough to feed oneself and one's family. 200 years ago, about 90% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Wow. Today, it's 10%. So 90% to 10%, and three-quarters of that reduction took place just in the last 30 years. Mm. Uh, another example is uh, education. How many people can read and write? I mean, for, for most of the human species, history of the human species, uh, very few people could read and write. It was a, it was some, a privilege of the, the, the wealthiest and, and best-connected people. Now, 90% of the world's population under the age of 25 can read and write, and it just keeps going up. And even things that are a little less easy to quantify, like are people happy? Well, in a majority of countries, people have been getting happier over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, Leisure time. Of course, everyone complains that they're stressed out, they're busy. But if you look at how much time our, our grandparents spent, our grandmothers, for example, on domestic chores, on you know darning socks and churning butter and so on. Washing clothes by hand. Washing clothes by hand. Uh, uh, even putting aside you know, the, 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 the image of the village women pounding their clothes on rocks. You know, my, my mother didn't have to do that. But I grew up, my mother, I grew up without a, a clothes dryer. I mean, right. my, my mother hung clothes up on a clothesline. Uh, and, and that's it's pretty tedious. Uh, if you look at the number of hours that we have for leisure, it's increased right. for most people. It's something you can't appreciate unless you count or unless you, you know, look up data for people who right. counted. So these are the kinds of epiphanies, revelations that led me to write Enlightenment Now, that the view of the world that you get from data is very different than the world that you, the, the view that you get from the news. No, it's true. And I think it's... Um... And I don't know why it is, and I know you you sort of get into it, like why we not our our pessimists, but we tend to we tend to be more pessimistic than optimistic. Well, we tend it's true that we there is a psychological phenomenon called the negativity bias. That is that bad things uh, affect us more than good things. Mm-hmm. so we we dread losing something more than we enjoy gaining something. The, the tennis star Jimmy Connors once said, I, "I hate to lose more than I like to win." It's true. <laughs> and that's kind of the hu- that's that, yeah. that is kind of human nature. Also, we're kind of wired for nostalgia. Mm. Even though we remember bad events, we don't remember how bad they were with the passage of time. Uh, many women talk about childbirth that way. Right. That uh, you know they, they remember it was it was bad, but it doesn't. F- in, in, the memory is not as awful as it was to go through it at the time, and that's true of a lot of bad experiences. So we kind of look at the past through rose-colored glasses. We look mm-hmm. at the present much more pessimistically, at least when it comes to the world. There's another interesting psychological phenomenon, which is that people tend to be over-optimistic about themselves. Mm. People think, now this is, this makes no sense. I'm going to say something that is that everyone believes that cannot be true. People believe that they're less likely than the average person to be the victim of of cancer, of a car accident, of unemployment, of a divorce. Now, of course, a majority of people can't be above average. That that, that contradicts the idea of an average. It's like the Lake Wobegon uh, effect where uh, all the children are above average. That's a joke because it can't be true. That's what we think. However, if you change the question, if I don't ask you about you, but I ask you about the country, then people turn from optimists to pessimists. Mm-hmm. They say, I think I'm going to get richer in the next decade, but I think everyone else in the country is going to get poorer. 
I think my kids' schools are, are pretty good. I think the country schools are awful. Right. So, and I think it's because people's view of the world comes from the news, which reports everything that goes wrong. We can't make it through life unless we have enough of an optimistic attitude to get out of bed every morning and, and uh, try to make our lives better. I also think that we are hard. I don't know if it's hardwiring or it's a belief system into this idea of scarcity. And I know women, I feel like women very much feel that way, too, that if someone else is getting something, then invariably you're not going to get it, which is untrue, right? Like the curves in your book are either all going up or all going down. Like there's there's no cap. I think that as humans, if I say, well, I'm going to get wealthier, it means some that money somehow yes. is coming out of someone else's pocket. It's called, it's called a zero-sum mindset. Yeah. Uh, that that if one person has more, another person must have less. Right. And there's there's some areas in life where that, that is true. If uh, But it's kind of a fallacy. But, for but it is a fallacy part. for economies because yeah. economies have uh, grow. Right. So we're uh, the world now is probably about 200 times richer than it was a couple of centuries ago, <clears throat> which means that even a constant share of the pie is much bigger in absolute terms. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I loved the book because of the way that it was organized and also that every time I wanted to rise with, but but what about, but what about, it's like you you had sort of yeah. a positive response. Yeah, um, not, no, of course, not everything is getting better. I mean, right. that's, it's not, there's no magic. There's no miracle. It's not like there's some. Well, I want to debate you on that. Just kidding. Yeah. No, but there like, is. There's not like, well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I have found that people have trouble thinking clearly about what progress means. Mm. People say, well, what about this problem or that problem? What about incarceration rates? Mm -hmm. What about uh, uh, the opioid epidemic? And it's true. These are terrible problems. But the f progress cannot mean that everything gets better everywhere for right. everyone. I mean, that, that would be a miracle. That wouldn't mm -hmm. be progress. Progress is solving problems. And when our species puts its mind to solving problems, we every once in a while succeed, and if we remember what works and if we discard what doesn't work, then over time things can gradually get better. But yeah. but it's not magic. The problems are inevitable. There'll always be new problems to solve. Of course, but it's it's amazing too throughout the book how you sort of talk about you know as countries get richer, as a lot of these other problems start to dwindle that are more acute, whether it's smallpox wiping out 300 million people or World War II, that we can marshal our resources and focus on things like incarceration and focus on the environment. That was less optimistic than the rest of them. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, and, and it's really, the way I put it, it's not really so much a question of optimism because who knows what's going to happen in the future? It depends on what we do now. Right. Uh, but it is a question of, uh, of of being aware of the progress that we've been we've made so far. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a term that I wish I had invented, but it uh, it was invented by Hans Rosling, the uh, the late Swedish doctor and TED Talk star. He calls it factfulness. Mm. That is being aware of the uh, which way the world has been going. There's, which in many, many regards has been improvement. It doesn't mean that it's guaranteed to continue, but it does mean that in the past, at least, when we try to solve problems, we have partially, incrementally, gradually succeeded. Mm. No, no panaceas, no utopias, but, you know, but, but things have gotten better. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there's a, a quote, again, that I'm going to steal from someone else, but uh, former President Obama used to tell his staff, better is good. Yeah. Because every time there was a, a policy proposal, someone would say, oh, yeah, but there's still going to be these problems. And it's not going to fix everything. And you'd say, yes, true, but better is good. 
Yeah. And I, I wish I had uh, coined that that expression. There's so many things that you wish. There's so many years ahead of you to coin more things. <laughs> or, to, or to steal them, yes, <laughs> with attribution. Um, going back to the the negativity bias, too, I thought it was fascinating that you sort of outlined how we generally believe, and I'm probably slaughtering this, but that negative people are smarter. Like it's it's it's, it's more esteemed to take a negative position. Yes. Well, we there there was a study that showed that people who uh, write a, a negative review of a book are judged to be smarter than people who write a positive review. Yeah. Now, of course, that, that, that's that got to be nonsense. Right. But it, And it is, I know, a risk that I'm taking in pointing out all the ways that the, that the, the world is getting better. I'm kind of writing a, a book review about the world. Right. Uh, and uh, there is, you're, you're right that we do attribute a kind of sophistication, a kind of uh, moral goodness to the prophet who says, oh, we're all doomed. Yeah. Uh, there's another saying from from the humorist uh, musician Tom Lehrer, uh, always predict the worst and people will hail you as a prophet. It's true. It, and, and I think that is also, it, it is a, a bias in journalism mm-hmm. that to be a responsible journalist, you have to uh, only report things that go wrong. Mm-hmm. That if you report anything that goes well, then you're, you're a propagandist, you're an apologist for the government, you're a corporate uh, a PR hack. Yeah. Now, this is... This is nonsense. If bad news is worth reporting, then good news is worth reporting as well. By good news, of course, I don't mean like uh, a, a lady who celebrates her 100th birthday or a good Samaritan cop who pays for the groceries of a welfare mother or a panda, oh, you know, a baby panda at the zoo. I mean, those are nice too. Yeah. If, that's, if those are the best things that are happening in the world, then we're really in bad shape. <laughs> no, I mean things like diseases are <clears throat> on the brink of elimination. Right. That countries that have been at war for decades have signed a peace treaty. That countries that you don't read about have, have turned democratic. Right. Uh, major stories like that, which tend to be downplayed in journalism because journalists are afraid that if they report anything that's going well, they'll lull people into complacency. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that, too. And then there's also that Brene Brown concept of foreboding joy, which I think is a very human instinct, which is like standing over your sleeping baby and anticipating or worrying about your baby not breathing. It's this Mm. idea that if we worry and are anxious that somehow we can head something off. Like if we anticipate something mm-hmm. that we're preparing ourselves for, it's just like a social science phenomenon, but it's... Well, there is, some, of course, some truth to that. There's yeah. a reason that, that anxiety evolves, why our brains are capable of anxiety, and it, it does motivate us to be vigilant, to, to uh, take precautions. Mm-hmm. So if we had no anxiety, we'd be in big trouble. Right. Just as like if we had no capacity to feel physical pain, then we would grind our, our bones to powder because we would never change our position in our seat. We would right. we would scald ourselves with hot coffee. We would uh, do all kinds of terrible things to ourselves. Pain has a function. Yeah. Anxiety has a function. But there can be too much of it. Totally. Especially when it concerns things that you can't appreciate in your day-to-day life but that you can only see through 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 numbers, through right. graphs. And I think, and speaking of complacency too, when you paint a sort of doom, and particularly around something like the environment, which is the most pressing issue of our time, when you paint something as so inexorably terrible and bad and dooming, I think people are like, 
I can't do anything. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. No. Yeah. That, that's the. You know, on the one side, there might be a fear of complacency. Yeah. The other side, there's a, one should worry about about fatalism, about cynicism, totally. about saying, well, there's since we're doomed anyway, I may as well just enjoy myself and not not bother to try to save the climate. Right. Because uh, because uh, we're we're <clears throat> we're cooked. Totally. Now, uh, now we know that we have uh, dealt with environmental challenges in the past. Air pollution in uh, most cities in the in, in rich countries have gone has gone down. Uh, water pollution has gone down. Rivers that used to catch fire are right. now uh, have been cleaned up. Fish have returned. Uh, uh, bald eagles have returned. We've uh, the the world signed a treaty to um, protect the ozone layer, and, and the ozone hole is closing. Even before that, I mean, people forget that in the in the '60s, when they were testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, just these these uh, H bombs going off in Pacific islands. There was radioactive strontium that was taken up uh, by in, in rainfall, um, eaten by uh, cattle when it would, uh, got absorbed by grass, and was turning up in milk. Kids were drinking radioactive milk <laughs> in the early 1960s, and it was getting into their bones, radioactive strontium. So the world passed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. You cannot explode a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. In fact, no country even explodes a nuclear weapon underground except North Korea. Right. Now, but uh, that reduced the rate of radioactive strontium in the atmosphere. So that's an example of how the world can come together, uh, reverse certain environmental harms, and it's that kind of mindset that we have to continue applying in the future. Totally, I thought it was fascinating. Sort of some of the the mo- more promising and some of the less promising technology that people are working. I mean, it. I'm constantly. It's nice. I think we all get in a bubble where we forget how many brilliant minds are working on some of these problems. Not that we don't all need to do our part, but obviously it's a much needs a much bigger solution. But even climate engineering and which I I know people have sort of always said, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. But like we actually have the ability potentially to yeah, there like is. There are some. Engineer. There are some proposals to try to uh, you know, rescue the planet. Should it get to uh, catastrophic uh, warming by yeah. uh, maybe dispersing particles in the upper atmosphere to mimic the effects of a volcanic eruption to filter out some of the sunlight, some of the uh, solar uh, radiation. Now that can't be a long-term solution right. because the oceans are going to continue to absorb CO two. We can't just keep spewing CO2 in the atmosphere right. and kind of slather sunscreen on, on the planet. Carbonic that, acid. Yeah, exactly. So, but uh, as perhaps a, an insurance policy for a temporary measure until we can suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere, it's worth at least doing research into it. Right. But we can't, obviously, that's not going to be the solution. Right. But we might have to <clears throat> do it as a kind of uh, harm prevention yeah. stopgap. I thought that was fascinating, the parts of the book that sort of explain how we take action as individuals and sort of how you we can't, like, it's, you can't really expect, people aren't willing to do things or give up things. Well, there's, that, a, yeah, there is a, a general phenomenon, sometimes called the tragedy of the commons. Yeah. Uh, or a fancy schmancy word for it is a negative externality in, in economic lingo. Uh, and that is, it comes from a, a, a uh, a parable. Imagine you've got a town commons, a grassy area where people can bring their cattle, um, their livestock. For every villager, uh, it makes sense to bring your cow to the town common because you get to feed your cow with more, with more grass. The problem is if everyone does it, then the 
commons can be denuded of all grass. It'll never grow back and everyone suffers. Right. But for every individual, no one wants to think, well, if I'm the one who doesn't bring my cow onto the common, I'll be the sucker. Everyone else will have fat, fat cows and I'll, uh, I won't get any, any benefit. Now, the problem is everyone thinks that and then everyone suffers. Right. So that's sometimes called the tragedy of the commons. And a lot of our environmental problems are like that in that if you simply ask individuals to conserve, to watch their, 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 you know, their food miles, their carbon footprint, people will say, well, I could, uh, you know, I, I could shiver in the, in the winter or I could swelter in the summer or I could forego a, a trip. But everyone else is going to be doing it. They're going to have all, all the, the, the comfort and fun. Uh, I'm not going to save the atmosphere if I'm the only one doing it. Only if everyone does it right. will uh, we all benefit. So there's certain problems that just have to be solved uh, at the level of the entire planet, mm-hmm. and clim- climate is one of them. Right, and that's why the carbon tax makes the most sense. And living in Los Angeles, for example, I do it anyway, but I take exceptionally short showers, and mm-hmm. I'm very conscious of we're all conscious of our water use in our house, and because also water is expensive, right? So well, that's why you, yeah. if you make water expensive, yeah. then everyone will do it out of self-interest. They'll exactly. do what's beneficial for the whole uh, community. Yeah. So that's why governments have to play a role. It can't just be individuals voluntarily conserving. You have to make things that harm the country expensive. You make things that help the country cheap. And then everyone just acting in their own self-interest will do what's beneficial for the country and And the world. Totally. And I also thought it was interesting sort of the argument that you made about how we are all such, you know, how people like to say that we're terrible consumers. And of course, we all buy too many things and want too many things and want immediate gratification. But the... You talk about the dematerialization of so much of our lives as well as sort of one antidote to that, which I thought was a really nice way of thinking about it, that thanks to a computer, thanks to a smartphone, like we don't really use paper or we don't use, you know, all those devices that we might have had have been absorbed by one thing and... You think of how many appliances have been replaced by a, a little smartphone. Right. I mean, who has an answering machine anymore? Um, many of us don't <coughs> subscribe to paper um, magazines and newspapers. You don't need a, you know, a, a video recorder. You don't need to, many people do without a camera. Right. Uh, you don't even need a metronome. <laughs> you don't need a thermometer. Uh, so there is uh, dematerialization because of the electronics revolution. We may even have reached peak stuff. Mm-hmm. In the sense of how much matter we consume is uh, starting to go down thanks to the electronics revolution. That's the kind of measure, technological measure that will be uh, ultimately good for the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have to actually consume atoms uh, right. to get to, to, to enjoy to enjoy our lives. And I know people are terrified of technology too, right? That it will as dematerialize jobs. That it's we're all going to be replaced by robots, but that doesn't seem like a particularly reasonable? Well, we, we, we don't know. So it, it, there is you know, one scenario in which, uh, you know, what are we going to do when all the truck drivers are put out of work, work right. by self-driving trucks and so on? Uh, and that, that, you know, that, that might be a problem. It's not ha- going to happen tomorrow because it turns out that it's actually pretty hard to develop a truck that can drive through city streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those truck drivers aren't going to be uh, unemployed tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, if we're smart enough to develop a truck that can get from A to B by itself, we're, we're probably smart enough to figure out how to reorganize the economy, to put people to work doing new things that need to be done that, that can't mm-hmm. be done by uh, robots, like taking care of, of uh, patients in hospitals, mm-hmm. maybe tutoring kids in, the, in, in poor countries over the Internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? Elder care. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, who knows what we 
can uh, put people to do if we're clever enough about reorganizing the economy. Yeah. We'll get right back to Elise and Stephen. When I sat down to write my new cookbook, The Clean Plate, the first rule was that everything had to taste really good. The second was that every recipe had to comply with the fundamentals of clean eating. I wanted the recipes to work on days when you're craving a healthy filling lunch or planning a dinner for a friend with a food sensitivity. And because I love to cook and I love to eat, I wanted to have fun with it all. I never want food to feel like a punishment or a chore. This cookbook is different for me because in addition to the recipes, I included six Q&As with cutting edge functional doctors and nutrition experts. Each one focuses on their area of expertise from metabolism to heart health. And they all come with a tailored week-long cleanse. I hope you get a chance to try out some of the recipes in the clean plate. You can pick up a copy on goop.com or from your bookseller of choice. I have friends who won't leave the house if they haven't shaved their legs, which is definitely not me, unfortunately for my husband. But I do appreciate a close shave and the feeling of getting out of the shower or sliding under the sheets when your legs are really smooth. I always felt like guys razors were designed a little bit better and I've been known to go for my husband's razor in the past, but I'm pretty beholden to my own now. It's made by a brand called Flamingo. If you know Harry's, the men's grooming brand, Flamingo uses the same German-engineered technology as Harry's to create super high-quality five-blade cartridges. Only the Flamingo version is designed for women, so it glides across all the right places, legs, ankles, knees, armpits, bikini line, etc. The razor has a grippy handle, which comes in three colors, and it has little rose gold details. There's also an adaptable hinge, so the razor looks pretty in the shower caddy, but you'll keep it around because it makes for a precise, clean shave. And that feeling of getting into bed and slipping under the covers is somehow just better. To test drive Flamingo yourself, head over to shopflamingo.com backslash goop. You can pick up a Flamingo razor for just $9. That's shopflamingo.com backslash goop. Okay, back to Elise's chat with Steven Pinker. You also talk about how we've reached peak population and there were so many... Um, we haven't reached it yet, but we oh, but we will. Sorry. Yeah. But that it is, it's this idea that our world is going to be so incredibly overpopulated is a fallacy because people are actually having fewer countries, sorry, fewer children because their babies aren't dying. Yes. So uh, in general, I mean, the world population is going to continue to increase, but it's not going to increase uh, indefinitely because as people get uh, richer, as people get better educated, as they move to cities, and particularly as women are empowered, mm -hmm. when women decide how many children to have and when to have them, they have fewer children. They mm -hmm. don't have their male relatives pressuring them to start pumping out babies when they're uh, 17 years old. Right. And we see this in country after country. Obviously, it happened most dramatically in wealthy Western and Asian countries and in, uh, uh, in, in Italy, in France, in the Netherlands, in uh, Japan, in China, and starting to happen in the United States, that birth rates are starting to plunge. It's below yeah. replacement level. Uh, it's starting to happen in Islamic countries like Iran and uh, uh, Bangladesh and Tunisia. Rates of uh, uh, birth rates are going down. And it could happen everywhere as countries get wealthier, better educated, and more uh, female-empowered. Now, population is still going to grow. And, uh, 
and no one knows how big it'll grow, but under one projection, taking into account education and, and urbanization, it would probably it could peak at nine billion in around uh, twenty seventy. Got it. So, and speaking of urbanization, one of the other interesting movements that seems actually promising for the environment is that as we become, we start to live in a more dense way, and we farm in a denser way and a more efficient way, that some of that land can return. Yeah, this is a um, uh, an argument that, that I made uh, that uh, shocks people. I, I wasn't original to me, but that density is good mm-hmm. for the environment. That is, if you pack people into cities, well, that frees up land that can be recolonized by forests and that can support more biodiversity. If you have high-tech agriculture that grows more food on less land, then the abandoned farmland can turn back into, into forest and grassland. So a lot of the things that the traditional green movement uh, has opposed, such as dense cities, such as high-tech agriculture, for that matter, uh, I'll, I'll throw in uh, nuclear power as long mm-hmm. as we're getting uh, yeah. contra- controversial here. Let's talk about nuclear power next. <laughs> but you know, nuclear power is the world's most abundant and scalable form of zero-carbon energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a, a new twist on the environmental movement, sometimes called eco-modernism or... Uh, the, the, the blue-green or turquoise movement as opposed to the traditional green movement that kind of does the math and says, well, let's, let's not base our policy on images of you know, bucolic farms and you know, peasants living close to the land. Let's actually count up what does the most damage to the environment and what does the, the most good. And you can be surprised because when you think about it, if you grow more food on less land, that's good for the environment. If you pack people into cities, that's good for the environment. Mm-hmm. And if you get a lot of energy without burning fossil fuels, that's good for the environment. Totally. In cities, not only do they use less land, but people use less energy uh, per capita. Because if you're in, a, in an apartment building, you know, as the old Paul Simon song went, one man's ceiling is another man's right. floor. So that it's easier to heat an apartment than to, eat a, than to heat a house. And with Uber and Lyft and the dematerialization of cars and more public transport, Fewer people are on the roads. Yeah, indeed. And, and of course, in cities, commutes are, are shorter uh, compared to li- living out in the country. To get a quart of milk, to take your kids to school, there's just le- less miles that you have to travel in a vehicle. Oh, I know it well. I grew up in Montana, so I spent a oh. lot of time oh, in oh. town because my mom didn't want to drive us home. Right. Yeah. No, it was – I mean, if you forgot the groceries – that was a problem. And I bet you burned a lot of gasoline. And I'm sure. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. My mom was, as we were talking before we started, ex- has always been very fearful about the environment. So that was the excuse for why I couldn't go on a Uh-oh. play date or we couldn't uh, go into uh, town. Yes. So you had to do without a play date. I had to do without. The, to... I was doing without Stephen. <laughs> yeah. I was not going city, to the commons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I took the, the, the Green Line uh, trolley to, to get here from my uh, my house downtown. And uh, yeah. I, I might take an Uber back, which is still a car. But on the other hand, when the Uber drops me off, it'll pick someone else up instead totally. of making a round trip one, one way empty. And um, speaking of leisure time, when you live in the city, I mean, I live in a very s- small house. You spend a lot less time cleaning it. Yeah, also, also <laughs> true. Exactly, and you spend less. Uh, you, you burn fewer fossil fuels heating it. Yeah, no, I'm all, I'm all in. So let's bunk, let's debunk some more myths. I thought that you know, obviously, we have an opioid crisis, as you mentioned, and and that we have to solve that might be might have reached its peak. It sounds like maybe. I mean, it is. So this is an example where where numbers I find really change your view of the world. Yeah. So I, I had a graph I got from 
numbers from the National Safety Council of how uh, people die accidentally. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, this, this again was a, a total shock. If you look at your chance of dying in a fire are about, have fallen by about 95%. Your chance of dying in a car accident have fallen 95%. Your chances of drowning have fall, fallen 95%. Mm. Your chance of being asphyxiated have fallen 95%. So the world is getting safer and safer and safer. But there's one exception. When I plotted these graphs, I saw all these curves zooming downward and one curve shooting upward. And that curve was death by poison, solid, or liquid. I thought, what's going on? Why are people suddenly eating rat poison or or drinking bleach? I mean, that doesn't make sense. And then I read the footnote and it said this includes drug overdoses. So that was the opioid epidemic. And Mm -hmm. the opioid epidemic is really serious when you look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of scare stories in in, in the paper, you know, apple juice is carcinogenic, and uh, which, uh, a lot of them are totally out of touch with the, the, the numbers. But the opioid crisis is really serious. I mean, killing forty to 50,000 people a year, yeah. I mean, more than car accidents. So uh, contrary to the idea that if you look at, at, at these beneficial trends, you become an optimist about everything and you ignore uh, problems, this, that graph really b- drove home to me. And, it, and to every person who reads my book, every audience that I present it to, they... Uh, their eyes widen. They're, they're stunned at how serious the opioid epidemic is. It really is serious. Yeah. But on the flip side, you talk about how actually kids are using fewer drugs. Well, yes. So it's actually, this is a, a even though people tend to blame young people for all for society's everything. problems. No, it's... Those it's, goddamn millennials. Yeah, no, it's, it's 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 my generation. <laughs> it's the baby boomers who are really the screwed up generation. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, that, that is true. The drug, drug use, except for marijuana and vaping, has gone way down in younger people. And wealth inequality, I thought was interesting too, that you talked about how while there's... Obviously, there is arguably too much wealth inequality in this country. It's not as extreme as we might think. Or, well, it's, you know, I... I or it is extreme, is, but it's not as... It is getting uh, greater. Inequality across the world is actually going down mm. uh, because countries like China and India and Indonesia with you know, billions of people uh, are getting rich, very, richer very quickly. And so they're actually kind of closing the gap worldwide. Within rich countries like the United States, inequality is increasing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are problems there. I think that the rich people have too much political influence influence. Yeah. They, they can kind of rig the uh, too many laws that, to, to benefit them. But the, what we should really concentrate on is not inequality per se, but it's poverty. Right. Uh, it's, it isn't the gap between the rich and the poor. It's how well the poor do and, and the, the, the lower middle class and the middle class. Um, there, there, there are certainly problems, but if you take into account the uh, government uh, benefits of um, Social Security, Medicare, food stamps, earned income tax credit. The uh, you find that that uh, poverty in the United States has decreased not uh, by a lo- by a lot thanks to government action, and that the even though the middle lower middle class has kind of stagnated, it certainly hasn't gotten uh, any worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the picture is a little bit different. It's an argument for why we should take seriously government programs that we do have that cushion the uh, the hardship of poor people. They right. are absolutely necessary. Yeah. And hopefully become a nation that is, I know we're already incredibly rich, but where we can establish sort of a universal baseline of, what is it called? The universal basic income? Universal basic in- income or a program like that, that at least is a, a good way of... Yeah, it is a... Um, 
it's a, it's a it's a surprising idea because it sounds like the ultimate in kind of government welfare. Everyone just gets a check every month just for being alive. Right. You think, oh my God, those the left wing socialists are have really taken over. But it's actually an idea that's been proposed by a lot of people on the right. Yeah. Like Richard Nixon in his time, like uh, the economist Milton Friedman, like Charles Murray nowadays. It's kind of a favorite right wing kind of a replacement for the huge welfare bureaucracy that we have now. Said so instead of having all of these. Uh, government agencies and means testing and different mm-hmm. programs. Just write everyone a check. It's much cheaper. Right. Now, there, there are some problems to a universal basic income. It's, it can be very expensive. It only works if you do eliminate all of these existing welfare programs. And it could remove the incentive of people to, to work. Why work if, you, if the government gives you a check every month? I Why agree. educate yourself? Why take chances in starting a business? Don't you think that that is, that that is such a minority? Don't you think that people inherently want to have purpose and meaning in their life? I think so. It's a, it's a, I, I treat it as kind of an open question. We should look at the experiments where it's been tried and see Always what happens. back to the, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> Although there, there are some things that are maybe short of just a universal basic income, but moving in that direction, such yeah. as a, a, what's something called a negative income tax, where if you're, if you do work and your salary falls below a certain amount, instead of you writing a check to the government, the che- government writes a check to you. You already have that. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. Yeah. And there are a lot of economists both on the left and the right saying that we should really expand that. That really does work in reducing poverty without removing the incentive to work. I love that idea. We're so smart. I mean, you talk about that too. We're getting smarter and smarter. Well, this is, this is uh, of all of the graphs showing uh, improvement in the book, the one that stuns people the most, and, and myself included, was one that plots IQ scores over time <clears throat> and shows that we are getting smarter in uh, three IQ points a decade for a century. So we score 30 points higher than uh, our great-grandparents a century ago. Now, how could that be true? I mean, we haven't changed biologically. We have the same brains. And it's true that the kind of intelligence that's increased is not raw brain power, like right. the ability to memorize sequences of numbers and repeat them back backwards. That hasn't changed. But what has changed is we are mentally more sophisticated at manipulating symbols, at like reading just you know, reading a, a, a subway schedule or operating a, a, a bank machine or a subway ticket machine, which, believe it or not, baffled people even 30 years ago when they totally. introduced. Yeah. My mom still writes checks. Yeah, right. Yeah. There, there are some people who just can't get the idea that they have to have something physical in their hand, a piece mm-hmm. of paper, and abstract symbols on a screen just baffle them. Right. So we're becoming more abstract. Also, there are concepts that kind of trickle down from science and academia and and uh, technology into everyday life. Like you and I began the conversation talking about a, a zero-sum thinking right. or like a win-win versus uh, win-lose situations. That came from a branch of mathematics called game theory. And 70 years ago, the term was unknown and it was only mathematicians who would talk about it. Now here and I, you're, you and I are just sort of batting it around and everyone knows what win-win means. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of concepts that kind of work their way into everyday conversation from science universities that kind of make us smarter. Again, not in the sense of having better brains, but just having better uh, cognitive tools. So what, absent your book, which I do believe is such an incredible gift, like how can we in our lives more ourselves better in reality and not the perception of reality as interpreted 
by yeah. media. I mean, I'm part of media. I love the media, but I I see your point. You know. Yeah, I'm part of. We um, have to be more um, more more numerate. And mm-hmm. That's the the word that goes with literate. Right. That is um, more comfortable with numbers. And instead of, I think the media have to, instead of just presenting splashy events, have to put them in the context of how often do they really occur. Also, I think the news media shouldn't, should have a, a balanced view of what what their obligation is to, to present. That the idea that only negative events count and anything positive is, uh, you know, selling out as government propaganda. I think that that's got to change mm-hmm. because... People feel empowered when they see that problems can be solved. And and problems can be solved. Not perfectly, but things can get better. Better is good. Better is good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Elisa's conversation with Steven Pinker. I hope you feel a little less anxious now, too. To learn more about Steven's work, check out stephenpinker.com. Okay, let's get to today's AMA. Jillian asks, as a boss, what do you do to make sure your employees are happy and don't burn out? This is actually something that I think a lot about. I think it's really important to have a a happy office culture. Of course, things arise and there's conflict and people become unhappy or feel overworked. But I think that um, one of the things we do here at Goop is really try to articulate our way of communicating. We have pillars of communication. We try to make sure that everybody understands how important it is to speak their mind in a kind way and how we're all encouraged to listen to each other in a way that somebody feels open to sharing what's on their mind. And I think we also have, you know, we try to have fun. Last night we had a great dance party. Uh, I think we try to do things to bring everybody together and align as much as possible. So I think it's really important focus, you know, to it's nice to go to work and feel like you're valued and you co-work and coexist in a culture that's supportive. Otherwise, you know, life can be a real bummer. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in to the Goop podcast. We'll be back next week with episodes on Tuesday and Thursday. In the meantime, we would love it if you took the time to rate, review, and share the podcast with a friend. To keep up with new episodes, hit subscribe. And for more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast.